You are listening to the Deepening Your Practice podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at metagroup.org. That's www.metagroup.org. We are going slowly through the Manual of Insight, which is the new translation of the Mahasi Sayadaw text on Karnaka Samadhi. Karnaka Samadhi is a Pali word that means momentary concentration insight practice, and, uh, or otherwise known in the West as noting practice. So, noting practice is where you simply allow your attention to be drawn to whatever is interesting, and when it gets there, you know that that's where it is, you soak into the sensing experience of it. Um, it's different uh, from uh, a traditional concentration-oriented practice where you learn to concentrate first and become quite concentrated and then move into insight practice. The main difference is that in a concentration-first practice or a samadhi-first practice, you learn to purify the mind of the hindrances first and when the mind is purified and in a continuous state of concentration, you move in to investigate uh, your basic uh, exploration around what insight is in, in meditation terms. In momentary concentration insight practice, you don't need to develop the basic concentration first. You just need to have a concentrated mind in each moment of noting and then in between that you can be uh, caught up in the hindrances as long as each time you come back into concentration. Um, Each time you come back into the noting practice you're concentrated around that particular moment of noting or that mind moment. The reason that this happened really is because of the uh, British invasion of Myanmar, Burma. you know the old joke, uh, the British invade Myanmar, and one of the officers says to, to a local person, what do you call this country? And the person says, Myanmar, and the British guy goes, oh yeah, Burma. <laughs> Came in, they decided what they would do is suppress the monasteries as a way of promoting uh, the Church of England. and. So the, the, the hierarchy of the meditation community got together and said that what we need to do in order to preserve the monasteries is push the practice out into the, the lay population because while it would be possible for them to suppress the monasteries, it will not be possible for them to suppress the entire population. But they knew that they couldn't teach the traditional style of concentration first to householders because they didn't have the time to begin that kind of dedication, and they didn't think that it would take hold if people didn't have the fruits of insight practice immediately. And so they taught this karnaka samadhi, or momentary concentration insight practice, because they thought that it would be a better approach to teaching the general population that didn't have the, the time or dedication to do a monastic practice, which is, I think, one of the reasons why it's taken on uh, so much in the West. Can I ask you about the temperature? Is it okay, or is it too warm, or what would you like? Warm enough. Warm enough? (laughs) 
Yeah, let's see. practice and it's mostly a concentration practice looking to develop bliss states associated with concentration practice. Um, it seems like that's at least training your concentration. It totally is and it's easy to adapt then to but other, to other switch practices. switch over might be a more traditional pathway. So that would be concentration first and then switching into insight practice. In insight practice what we're attempting to do is discover the nature of the human experience and we really explore it through the uh, one, one path is around self and no self, the understanding that there's no intrinsic, ongoing, continuous experience of self. Another is that, that everything is impermanent, everything arises and passes, nothing is, is uh, permanent or lasting. And the third is the unsatisfactory nature of the human condition. So mm -hmm. that's around, the first level of that would be that you're in, you live in a human body which will grow old, get sick, and will eventually die. And there's nothing you can do about that. <clears throat> the second level of that is that you're, you can get the things that you want, but you'll lose them. And this, this goes back to impermanence. Nothing lasts, so even if you get something that you want, eventually you'll lose it. Or you may not be able to get what you want. That's another level of unsatisfactoriness. Or you may have to put up with things that you don't want. All of those are part of un the unsatisfactory nature of the human condition. And the last one is this subtle, ongoing, constant irritation that nothing is exactly the way that you would have it if you were actually in charge of anything. It's a kind of double-edged sword. One is it's not the way you want it. And you're not actually in charge of anything. So, <laughs> if you can integrate into your consciousness, this is the conditions that you live with, then your suffering goes down because your expectation is in line with how it actually is and what you can actually expect. And if you don't, if you want something to be permanent or you can't bear the idea of losing something, you may not even pursue going after it. Uh, and this is the origin of, of suffering in the Buddhist sense. Hmm? So we move through the Manual of Insight in these different ways. We're currently in the development of mindfulness, which is uh, the chapter on, on <coughs> meditation. And tonight's uh, topic is the five aggregates. Is there no particular method for contemplating the uh, aggregates? Um, as mentioned before, for those of, uh, for whom the noting of materiality is suitable are, the, are able to thoroughly understand them when they note seeing, hearing, and so on. But for those for whom the contemplation of the base senses or elements is suitable will understand them when they, are note, when they note seeing and so on. This will also serve the purpose of those for whom contemplation of mental and physical phenomena is suitable. If one notes seeing, seeing at the moment of seeing, and is aware of one's eye sensitivity or the visual object, then one is aware of the 
physical aggregate, if one is aware of a pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant feeling connected with the visual object, one is aware of the aggregate of feeling. If one is aware of recognizing the visual object, one is aware of the ag aggregate of perception. If one, of a, one is aware of the mental formation arising, such as mental contact with the visual object, the volition to see it, greed, faith, and so on, one is aware of the aggregate of mental formations. If one is aware of eye consciousness, one is aware of the aggregate of consciousness. <clears throat> Being aware of the aggregates in these ways is consistent with the Pali passage. Uh, here a bhikkhu understands such as material forms, such as feeling, such as perception, such are the formations, and such is consciousness. So those are the five aggregates. Um, <clears throat> you have the capacity to sense something, that you have the object uh, that can be sensed, and when they meet, the consciousness of that sensing moment arises. There's a quality of uh, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral to the sensing experience, and then perception takes hold and you recognize the pattern of the sensing experience if you've previously sensed it, and all of the conditioning around that um, previous sensing experience then attaches to the present moment sensing experience, and it becomes something which is the mental formation, which consciousness knows. Mm. Is that making sense? I say this quite a bit. Uh, when when uh, the process of perception is completed, all of the, the responses <coughs> that you've previously made to that pattern of, of experience are known, and the action that you would take in response is formulated. That's the volition aspect of it. So in that whole process of sensing, each time you go through it, you recognize the sensing experience and through perception, uh, recognize whether you've experienced it before and then in the process of volition compare all of the previous times you've sensed it and the actions you've taken and the outcome which informs the action that you would take in response to this moment's sensing. Make sense? I also found that like since the trend is almost useful when you start to do the see here feel more because like being able to gather recognizing the sensation as something that you felt a bunch and then comparing it to what your mind's making it into as being different than the sensation of what you experienced before and made it into before and I don't know the trend can be useful when it comes to actually just sensation well, as opposed to what you make it into if you can be present for that then the process isn't automatic one of the things about <clears throat> conditioning is that you're conditioned to recognize the pattern and condition to respond to it, and if you you don't, uh, if you allow it to be perpetually automatic, then you just keep repeating the same thing over and over again. One way to do it is to add to the database, so you can uh, practice in such a way that you create alternatives to your conditioning and embed them into the database, so that when the process of evaluating goes through, you have new choices. That's one of the, one of the techniques that we use uh, for addressing attachment conditioning. 
is to reimagine your attachment. This is the John Bowlby attachment idea, not the Buddhist attachment idea. Shinzen um, <coughs> said that, uh, or has often taught, that the five skandhas are imprecise categories and therefore they're hard to note. And so his model, or his one way to describe the five skandhas is uh, what he, uh, how he defines mindfulness, which is concentration, sensory clarity, and equanimity. So um, that is... Uh, uh, something that he teaches as a kind of uh, simplification of the of the tracking of the five skandhas. <clears throat> so you know whether the mind is concentrated or not concentrated. You have sensory clarity over the sensing experience that you're watching, and then you attempt to come into a place where you simply can allow that whole process of sensing and the forming of the sensing into something to happen. <clears throat> Um, one of the things about uh, the mind, the body-mind that you'll become sensitive to is if you practice an insight practice is that the mind can really only sense one thing at a time. And so we have this direct experience of sensing and then inferential or direct insight and inferential insight. Uh, you have six senses. Um, the felt sense of the body, seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, and then also the mind. Um, mind as sensing rather than mind as the mind state that you're in. Um, one of the things about the English language is that we're often attempting to uh, you know, translate um, uh, poly words that are very specific or Sanskrit words that are very specific and then we assign the same English word to mean multiple things uh, because we don't have another word to describe them. So when we use mind as third foundation and mind as first foundation, we're talking about something different than that. So in the sensing experience of mind, it is the, the uh, sequencing of mind moments. That's one aspect of it. And also where your attention goes to is the, the experience of mind as a sensing experience. So that when you're just allowing your attention to move to wherever it moves, it is the aspect of what you pick to focus on without intending to focus on anything, which is the experience of mind. Is that making sense? And when you talk about the third foundation of mind, then you're talking about the mind state that is present. So is the mind equanimous or is the mind not equanimous? <clears throat> so in Shinzen's formulation, concentration, sensory clarity, and equanimity, uh, in some sense the equanimity piece encompasses the other mind states that would not be there if the mind were not equanimous. But he doesn't uh, use the investigation of the other mind states. He only uh, um, pro-offers the idea of coming into equanimity with whatever is happening. This, I think, is more an idea from Zen training, which he also did, than it is from a Theravada sense. In, in Vipassana meditation or insight meditation, V means to divide and Pasana means to see clearly. So by pulling everything apart, you can see clearly 
how the threads of individual sensing come together to form the sense of self and world. But the Zen, Zen approach is quite different than that, so it's a different, different map. The Zen map is simply being present for whatever arises and coming into equanimity with whatever arises. As I know I'm grossly simplifying. <laughs> Don't attack me later. <laughs> uh -huh. Is equanimity an emotional state, or is this mind in the third state, or whatever? Is that? It wouldn't necessarily be emotional. Um, it's not feeling tone. No, feeling tone or Vedana is the quality of pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant. Or pleasant, unpleasant, neutral sometimes, for Equanimous sure. Equanimity is just acceptance. Uh, yeah, equanimity, equanimity is simply allowing whatever happens to happen without needing to lean into it, without needing to lean away from it. So another way to put it is the absence of craving, aversion, and unconsciousness is equanimity. The absence of Aversion and unconsciousness. Unconsciousness? Yeah. Unconsciousness or delusion is the, the aspect of uh, losing track of awareness. Uh, so you have the object that can be sensed, you have the capacity to sense it. When they meet and have contact, the uh, consciousness of that sensing moment arises, mm -hmm. which has the quality of being pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Mm -hmm. And then uh, perception attaches, mm -hmm. and all of the recognition of previous patterns of sensing that are like that are associated with it. Mm -hmm. And then that process includes going into volition, or how to respond to it, mm -hmm. which awareness knows. Unconsciousness would be getting so identified with the activity of consciousness that you lose awareness. So you become identified with the content of consciousness, lose awareness that this is just a sensing experience that's happening and it becomes real in that way. So, um, and then when you recognize again consciousness, you see that this is a sensing moment that just arises and passes and is not permanent, it's intrinsic, ongoing. Is that making sense? Um, another way to think about it is, the, if you get stuck inside the experiences of consciousness, the, the level of suffering that you experience is extremely high. And if you're, if you're able to move your uh, identification into awareness, the suffering um, is nearly non-existent. So when we talk about an end of suffering in a, in a, some, ultimately the end of suffering is to be liberated enough that you're no longer reincarnated, so that you're outside of the cycle of birth and death. But when we talk about, you know, in a, in a more conventional way of being, being outside of the, the, the confinement and pressure cooker of being identified with consciousness and being in awareness is a kind of figure ground reversal that happens. You move out of being identified with things that are not true into awareness and an understanding of how things actually are. That the sense of self we often identify with comes and goes. Mm -hmm. It's not permanent that every sensing experience uh, comes and goes, and everything that we can sense comes and goes. Nothing lasts, nothing's ongoing, nothing is permanent. 
and that those characteristics of unsatisfactoriness that I described earlier are also true. Hmm? Is there, I feel like this is like probably an oversimplification, um, but is there a practice where you can titrate between consciousness and awareness to sort of get yourself to feel the difference? Because I feel like sometimes I just intellectually understand. I'm not, I'm not sure how. Well, um, I talk about it in, in the sense that you want to ardently and sincerely search for the self. Hmm? You want to really sincerely attempt to find the continuous experience of self until you're so exhausted in not being able to find it that you the mind actually settles into the idea that there isn't one to find. You want to search for a sensation or a sensorial experience that is continuous and ongoing and unchanging until you're exhausted from the search and you have yet and you don't find it so that you can the mind can actually settle into the understanding that the an ardent search has been done and it is unfindable and the same is true of, of satisfactory experience you want to ardently search for something that is continuously satisfying <coughs> so that you can give up by by actually not finding it. Is that making sense? But in, you can un intellectually understand that, but if you haven't actually undertaken the search for it, a part of you can grip tenaciously to the idea that something might exist that's ongoing. So that um, um, one of the ways to do that would be to look at the sense of self continuously. Um, but noticing unconsciousness, which is the getting caught up and moving back into awareness would also be a way, a way to do that. Um, Mm -hmm. so, is the sense of self is sense, the sense of the ego, the sense of ego? I mean, is it equivalent to um, I would say that ego in the ego coming from the Western psychology yeah. is the activity of of believing in the sense of self and and the defense of the sense of self. Um, when you see clearly that there is no self, you can also give up on needing to defend each momentary experience of self because you know that it's insubstantial and doesn't require defense. It's when you identify with consciousness and believe that it's actually something that's true and solid and needs to be attended to that you become defensive if you have the perception that somebody's attacking it. There's a sense of self and there's the ego defending sense. Right. <clears throat> so how do you actually, I mean you sort of explain the exercise in a way to um, understand how the, se the self um, is um, impermanent if you will, but how do you really get at the sense that, how do you get beyond the understanding, how do you feel the self impermanent? The, the that other layer beyond it. The, I mean, I, I know what you mean intellectually. Right. You, know. you have to now do the search. <laughs> um, 
The Buddha used a couple of metaphors. One was the metaphor of the chariot. In front of you, fully assembled, there's a chariot. You can attach horses to it and you can ride around on it. But when you take it apart and lay all the pieces on the ground, you have wheels and axles and platforms and rails and yokes and reins. Where in all of the pieces laying on the ground is the chariot? And when you put it together, as you're assembling it, at what point in the process of assembling it does it become the chariot? When does the chariotnessness uh, arrive? Right? Exactly. At what point is it a dresser? <laughs> Who's going to be left in the bag and it'll yeah. still be a Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the other metaphor he used was uh, uh, the butchering of a cow. Um, at what point is it a cow and is it, is at what point is it meat? When you cut the cow's throat, is it no longer a cow? Or is it not until you butcher it that it's, that it's no longer a cow and meat. Um, so in assembling the self, uh, we would look at it by breaking it into the, say, the five aggregates. In mental formation, where is the self? In <clears throat> material form, where is the self? In uh, feeling tone, where is the self? In perception, where is the self? In uh, consciousness, where is the yeah, self? Um, there is no way that I'm aware of to settle into this understanding so that you give up the search. This is really the point, right? The mind is looking to defend or to identify or be in the experience of self because you haven't so thoroughly done the investigation that you've seen that it's insubstantial. Once you see that it's insubstantial, you give up the search to find it. It's a conundrum. Yeah. Well, it's a, it is a, it's a practice to, to, to ardently look for it. I see. What about when there's like an identification with like an actual selflessness, sort of, uh, if there's been experience with that? Um, is that a craving for it? It, more of just like I feel like that question's always been asked and I've always sort of felt the only connection to a self has been what I think in Buddhism would be considered a self like the, a not self and so it's more of just like only feeling an identification with, <laughs> with that as a sense of self which is just feels like a huge contribution hmm it's like being in a state where you're not aware <coughs> but not conscious feels like the only time that it feels like there's a... A kind of dissociation? No, no. Just uh, acting entirely spontaneously uh, without uh, fear. Okay. <clears throat> you may be aware of a set kind of self-consciousness that arises which would be the activity of filtering your spontaneous responses through the experience of self. 
in some sense this is an identification with the experience of self and a defense of the experience of self so that rather than being perfectly spontaneous in the moment you filter these what might be the action you take based on how you think that people will perceive your being your sense of self is that what you mean so that if you you act from this place of just pure spontaneity then actually you're not filtering yourself through the sense of self and that would be a great place to identify but you need the craving what but then the craving comes really wanting to get back to so getting out of the, the, the confinement of self into yeah. that. Well, so like we could a, actually call that uh, a, a wholesome mm. uh, desire rather so, than... So suffering in a, in, in a progressive place. <laughs> Less suffering, because once you're in that... Well, yeah, yeah, there's awareness of the... The self is very confining. I like to think of it as a pressure cooker of suffering. If you get stuck in the experience of self, it's usually extremely painful to be there and if you can be in awareness there's almost no suffering and if you can if you can come away from needing to filter uh, your spontaneous responses to the sensing experience then you hear about them at the same time as the other people hear about them right my friend Jimmy says how do I know what I think until I hear what I say if you can get into that place it's, it's buoyant and energetic and, and uh, actually you, you tend to respond better to the conditions of the present moment than when you filter it through self. So that would be the ideal place to come. And you tell come. the truth all the time. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's an authentic expression, unfiltered, uh, except through right speech, kindness, right? You want to be kind in your operation. And that would actually be the place to get to. And you can get into that place where actually there's no self-present to understand what's coming in. Yeah. There's no self-present to understand what's going out. You're just right. in this flow of energy. Flow. A creative flow state. Yeah. <clears throat> so then you, you, you know what, we're, what I'm talking about. Oh, I feel like I've lost, I've had less access to that the more I've meditated. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, there's a kind of um, fearfulness that can come yeah. up around that that fixates yeah. the sense of That's self what's been and so that you move into attempting equanimity and which <coughs> tends to, to or into a flow state that is less fixating of those, those so experiences. More identifying fear in, in Vipassana, what we would do is be, we would more narrowly focus on individual sensing experiences so that it's harder to form the, the whole. Mm-hmm. That place of spontaneity is very, it's a very pleasant place to be in. Mo- most of us can get quite confined in self-consciousness and, and are you aware of the high degree of suffering that is accompanied by self-consciousness of being trapped in the, the experience of self. Um, <clears throat> if you don't have the experience of being effortlessly authentic, then 
uh, you're going to also have some experience of difficulty in doing that. Mm -hmm. um, the way that I like to talk about it is that uh, if you if you don't uh, interfere the the spontaneous authentic experience arises, um, but then if you become worried that in the expression of this effortless uh, spontaneous uh, expression, you'll be abandoned, mm. then you have a spike of abandonment terror that arises. Mm. Yeah. What? That rips you right out. Then yeah. the inauthentic spin you could use that would defend or make the self look more desirable arises in the mind. And if you push into that, it immediately relieves the abandonment terror. Mm. So you get something out of it immediately. You, you don't have to feel the abandonment terror, but then a little while later, you, you're gonna, a little while later, you're going to be angry that you've had to be inauthentic. Either that what that means is that you didn't really ask for what you wanted. So even if you get it, it doesn't satisfy you because it's not what you really wanted. Or you're you're mad at the other person that you had to lie to them in order for them not to leave you, even though they didn't ask you. So you're in this conundrum. If you push into the authentic expression, the, the intensity of the abandonment terror becomes, you know, just major. And if you can hold that, it will dissolve as if it's the wall of a dam, and you'll hit, be hit by a wave of terrible sadness. Oh wow! <laughs> 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 what about instead of being inauthentic? Is that is it possible for the response? To just like dissociate with that. Well, you can certainly dissociate, which would pull you out. But yeah. a long time with this facade. <laughs> if you if you allow the I like to call it the earthquake and tsunami, yeah. the earthquake of abandonment, terror, and the tsunami of <laughs> terrible sadness. Mm -hmm. If you let that roll through, then you come into a place of security, which is totally worth doing. Mm -hmm. One time, ten times, twenty times. You push into the authentic expression, and each time the earthquake and the tsunami are less and less until you've reclaimed that area of authenticity, and you can be perfectly authentic in that area and not have that that reaction. Uh huh. What's the origins of the tsunami of sadness? Is that so? I understand the tear of abandonment. So what? Where does the sadness? The sadness is, is usually the accumulation of the loss of your authenticity. Mm. So all of the times that you've been inauthentic and not made the authentic expression, it comes with sadness and it mm. just accumulates until it's this pool, this vast pool of sadness. <laughs> If you grew up in a family system where they were delighted to have you just the way you are, you, you probably didn't learn to be inauthentic, because there was no use for it. You expressed yourself authentically, they were delighted that you did that, and they provided the need that you were expressing. And so you learned that authentically asking for what you needed was the, the direct route to getting what you needed. But if you grew up in a family system where that didn't happen, and you had a choice between authentic expression and the expression that you thought that they wanted from you so that you could get what you, you needed, you became inauthentic. Nobody 
did not become authentic. There's, there are no uh, heroes in that sense. All children become inauthentic when it's demanded of them because they need to survive and they can't bear the anxiety of having a bad uh, parent. So they create the good parent, the good mother, the good father, and they become the bad child to explain why the, they had to be different than the way that they were. The, the, the quality that the, the caregivers did not want becomes a bad quality, even if it isn't a bad quality. You follow me on that? So that's what happens. Um, and so, uh, as uh, children, we did the thing that we needed to do in order to survive in the family system that, they were, that we grew up in, which was successful. We all succeeded in doing that because here we are now. But we're no longer children, any of us. I mean, at least outwardly. <laughs> so, we don't need to be inauthentic anymore. There's no requirement in our survival that we be inauthentic. What we do have is the earthquake and the tsunami to deal with. And so we, it, it, those processes can perpetuate the inauthenticity even though it's no longer required. And if we haven't, if we don't have the experience of being authentic, we don't know the value of it, what we know and associated as a valuable way of being is inauthenticity. Mm -hmm. You said you do that process for each area that yeah. comes up in. Do you have any sense for how many broad areas there are, or is it infinite number of situations that you put yourself in each area? It's really around conditioning, your conditioning, and what they wanted, and how different you were from what they wanted. So, you know, sometimes. I, I always use the metaphor of Minesweeper, you know that PC game? Sometimes when you click on a square, half the board opens up effortlessly. And sometimes when you click on a square, every square has a high number on it. And it's a treacherous, really compressed area because there's a lot of conditioning around it. Um, an, ex an example uh, for me would be that my mother wanted a little girl, and when I was born, for all practical purposes, I became a little girl. You look at pictures of me as a child, and I have little pigtails, and I'm wearing little outfits, which are, uh, would, in the 1950s, would be associated with the female gender. And then my younger brother was born, and he was conventionally raised in you know, that way. And then when my sister was born, overnight I became reassigned to the male gender, and my mother, um, all of my life was extraordinarily critical of every gesture I made being too feminine. So, I, you know, I couldn't get on and off my bike correctly, I couldn't tie my shoes correctly, I couldn't do anything without some kind of criticism around gender um, from my mother. So I became very inhibited about making any gesture at all, uh, uh, really just not expressive because it was so uh, difficult to come up with any kind of gesture that 
talking piece. So um, I tended to be quite inhibited as a kid. Um, I'm essentially wearing the same uh, outfit that I've I've been wearing since junior high. (laughs) (laughs) That's why we connected. Levi's, flat pocket tee. My friend Howie Montauk, who I adored, said, You're way too inhibited. Put this dress on. And it was actually a traumatic, yeah. traumatic experience to do it. So, uh-huh. so after all this conditioning, uh, when you begin to transition from inauthentic expression to authentic expression, right. you can expect the earthquake and followed by the tsunami. You can. And so you those are good signs. The earthquake-tsunami combo is... It is an indication actually, depending on the intensity of how authentic you actually were. Uh, wow. If you take a <laughs> gesture and there's no earthquake <laughs> and no tsunami, then you can assume that it was an inauthentic gesture. And if you make a gesture and the, there's an intense uh, earthquake and tsunami response, you can understand that it was authentic and in an area of a lot of uh, conditioning. You said this is authentic in an area of a lot of conditioning. So if there was an area where you didn't have that conditioning, you could still make a gesture without the tsunami, earthquake and tsunami and still be authentic? Um, I think that you would have the experience of earthquake and tsunami, but it, but it wouldn't be so impacted and so, so challenging. There might be a kind of uh, relief in it. That is, I think you ultimately get to, but depending on how deep the conditioning is, it may may take a, a number of repetitions. Well, does that also have to do with, like, sh- like for instance, you can explore without having an earthquake or tsunami, but sharing the exploration, right. you can find that. So, it's so depending on, on how that manifests, I know, for instance, when I started to do it, that I needed to bookend. <clears throat> Um, the emotional regulation of the earthquake and tsunami is really important. Uh, and so I would call up a friend and say, I'm going to take this action, which I know is going to result in the earthquake and tsunami. Um, and he would say, okay, call me as soon as you do it. And so then I would take the action and I would call him and say, I've done it. And he would have me describe how intense the experience was. And then I would call him every morning and describe how intense the experience was until it, it ended, and it could sometimes, you know, it could be 10 or 12 days of mm-hmm. calling and saying, mm-hmm. earthquake and tsunami <laughs> are still here, it's not so bad. But then what you get is the feedback from the world that when you've taken an authentic gesture, which is different from the feedback of the world when you take an inauthentic gesture. Um, <clears throat> it's, it's one thing to go for what you want and not get it, it's another thing not even to go for it. It has a different effect in terms of your relationship to yourself, the sense of meaning in life, all of those things. Um, if you never go for the thing that you want because the earthquake and tsunami need to be avoided because you can't tolerate them, then you have this regret that builds that is very challenging. 
I think rewards, at least for me, for somebody who had so much to regret from not being able to, to go for things most of my life, uh, <clears throat> remorse seems easy. <laughs> remorse is being associated with the things you do, right? I have almost no remorse, which may be why, but I have a lot of regret that I've been working through for years. How's that? Enough talking? Shall we do some sitting? If you are not on our email list and would like to be on our email list, here is the list. You could put your name and email on it. Anybody want to? So how did that go? Anybody find itself somewhere? <laughs> I thought I had it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it only would seem to be one place at a time. Mm -hmm. Good. You can do it over and over until you just give up. controlling everything, who is? <laughs> That's my favorite one. Yeah. Well, the same as like, we think that we're keeping ourselves alive, and yet we have no control over whether or not we get the next breath. You know, right. Just, There's something underneath us. And I always come back to that when I do this practice, and I'm just like, oh yeah, it's right. I genuinely think that I'm keeping myself alive. <laughs> I'm a self, so I'm not going to breathe again. Good luck <laughs> with that one. <laughs> yeah. In regard to the sharpness, how they're seeing the sharpness of the Western mind itself, it's as if you have to get it. Right. In this practice, it's about not getting it. Mm -hmm. That's it. Yeah. You know, and then once you find that you exhausted all the avenues and you're closest where you need to be. Because yeah. it gets your anger inducing. It's like, damn, this sucks. And you're never, <laughs> never going to find what you think you're going to find. And that's the point. <laughs> I think everybody else is on it. <clears throat> Good. You can do this investigation also with uh, impermanence as you pay attention to a sensation, you stay with the sensation to see if it's continuous or it ends. 
and then also with any of the aspects of unsatisfactoriness, can you get something and never lose it? Can you always get the thing that you want? Can you never have the experience of something that you don't want? And will that thing always make you happy? That's easy to understand consciously. Yeah, the first bite of the cake, amazing. Maybe even the second bite. <laughs> By the time you've eaten the whole cake, it's kind of disgusting. <laughs> I even find that like when you like cook something like Thanksgiving, like a Thanksgiving dinner, like all of it, and by the time you actually get to eat it, you're just like, oh, I'm sick of it. <laughs> that was quite a... Yeah, there is. A, a, <laughs> yeah, so Peggy it. Lee. I love that yeah. song. <laughs> In fact, my band covered it. Reference <laughs> um, Good. Then part of this is the integration of it. So then when the experience of self comes up, you see it as insubstantial and you don't reflexively move to defend it. You just watch it come and go. Big angry self comes and goes, and you go, oh, there's big angry self, but you don't do anything <laughs> to defend it. There's big sad self, and you watch it come and go. There's big joyful self, and you watch it come and go without clinging. And then or aversion, I guess, because I feel like I just get really frustrated when I see the rise. I'm like, oh, <laughs> stop. <laughs> Why are you making this <coughs> dumb? Aversion, aversion. Yeah. Mm. I, I'm getting better at seeing, feeling trapped in it. Yeah. And that's just inferior. So with the freedom we talk about in, in practice is the coming and going from the solid fixated to the unfixated to the flow without getting caught up in one or the other. Yeah, not judging the earthquake and tsunami as negative. Right. It's, it's conditioning. We're all conditioned. You want to evaluate our conditioning and see whether it's beneficial or afflictive. If it's beneficial, we want to reinforce the conditioning, and if it's um, afflictive, we want to stop using it. Most of the time, though, you won't be able to stop using the afflictive, con the afflictive strategies without replacing it because there'll be a deficit in, in how you operate. So it's always a, a matter of stopping and replacing, because the act, actually just stopping doesn't really exist. The body-mind has to regulate itself, and it has associated the different skills to regulating each of the different circumstances that you find yourself in. And if something happens and it's associated with an afflictive strategy, you will use the afflictive strategy unless you intentionally provide an alternative to that. Mm -hmm. This is important in, in understanding particularly addictive uh, strategies because if something happens and you're used to regulating by using an addictive strategy, the mind will think of using and then if you don't provide an alternative for it, it will take you down the path of using when, when the, the intensity of the distress is too great. Um, you can push something else in 
but if you don't intentionally do that, you can easily find yourself uh, using again, because the body-mind will regulate itself. So the importance of meta-training, bringing those thoughts in. Meta-training. Sugarless gum. Sugarless gum. <laughs> or another addictive measure, yeah. Um, I suppose if you change tables on the Titanic, one table will go in before the other. <laughs> they appear that it's, you're making progress. <laughs> um, all right. So this is deepening your practice, so I'm always advocating ways to deepen your practice. One way to do that is by going on retreat. We have a retreat coming up on December 27th. You can go for four nights, for six nights, or for ten nights. It's a Metta Vipassana retreat. There's some flyers out there for it. Um, five days of Metta practice followed by five days of Vipassana practice. The reason that I like to teach in a Metta Vipassana format is if you come in um, to a, a, a traditional Vipassana retreat, often the first few days of the retreat can be quite difficult or challenging emotionally, particularly if you're used to regulating your experience with a, a self-critical voice. If you come into a metta vipassana retreat, you do five days of metta so the body-mind settles and becomes quite kind, so that when you go into the vipassana practice, that self-judgment has usually been waylaid and so you don't have to have the experience of several days of, of critical, self-critical harshness. Um, <clears throat> we also teach uh, um, uh, relational mindfulness uh, uh, using um, an evaluation of attachment uh, strategies uh, and repairing attachment disturbances. Uh, we have uh, a meaningful life training which is for uh, people who don't have addiction, and we also have a meditation interventions for addiction processes. Um, both of these are six-month intensives. They meet twice a week. Uh, here, they're informational and also training uh, of meditation skill. And then we have a level two meaningful life, which is focused on shifting relationships to secure functioning. So it's not, it's, it's moving your dynamics of the relationships you're in to secure functioning. Uh, next September we'll do our first level three training, which is actually intended to get into the deep conditioning around your individual attachment strategy and begin to shift it toward more secure uh, functioning. Um, with level two training, Moving your relationships into more secure territory gives you a greater uh, base of support so that when you begin to do the deep work of uprooting attachment disturbance, uh, you have more support to do it. Um, having a daily practice is a useful thing, and so we also have morning meditation, which is a guided conference call every morning at 7.30, Monday through Saturday, for 25 minutes. I have some flyers out there for morning meditation, which would give you a free month. We do ask for a donation um, if, if it goes on beyond that. If you're not well-resourced uh, and you couldn't participate um, because of that, just call the office and let us know, and we're happy to add you, but we do 
we do, and we do need to be supported in that way. Um, tomorrow night there's a class here, which is a basics class, and then if you're out in on the west side, we have a, a, a class that's similar to this class on Thursday nights in, in Culver City. Uh, this class is offered on a Donna basis. All of our classes are offered. Donna is the Pali word for generosity. So you practice generosity as a heart opener for yourself, which is the sort of the opening of the path. Uh, the suggested Donna for this class is $20, but if you're really well resourced and $20 doesn't mean that much to you, you should be giving at a level that actually feels generous. If $20 is a good amount, give that. If you're not well resourced, then $20 is too much. Give at a level that's appropriate with your resources, but each time you come to a class like this, consider giving something because really you're practicing this uh, opening of the heart for yourself. And then if you're truly not resourced, uh, also understand that we're, we as a community are very happy to provide the space for you to come practice. You can take uh, cash out there, I can also take a card. You may also notice on the table there's some bracelets there. We consider them transitionary objects, and if you want to take some, you can do that as well. Thank you.